This is What's the Story, and I'm Kim Burns, and I'm here with, barely here with Dr. Mark Borg, who was stuck on 95 in the snowstorm after getting stuck flying back from California. Is that right? In Orlando yesterday with uh, two small children and my lovely wife, co-pilot. Uh, yes. <clears throat> yeah. And, and so we had the wise, we made the wise decision to get in a car from Orlando and fly drive up to New York City because the airlines told us we would not be able to get home from Sunday till today, Tuesday right. evening. And I, I've got interviews and I've got patients and I've got, as a matter of fact, I've seen like five patients today already. So have you? Yeah. <laughs> so, but but I also understand that you still were able to do an interview while pushing your car out of a snowbank, which is highly commendable. Uh, right. So I uh, so I answered the phone yesterday because I had one of these, you know, uh, making your crazy work for you interviews uh, scheduled for four thirty, and I picked up the phone as myself and three incredibly wonderful, generous people and my children were pushing a rental car out of a snowstorm. And I picked up the phone to say, hey, man, I can't I was going to get a little quiet time in my car to do this interview, but I'm pushing a car out of a snowstorm uh, snowbank. And he said, perfect. And we did the interview in a snowstorm, pushing the car out of the snow. I mean, it was it was unbelievable. <laughs> well, and, and we have to back it up a little bit. So we can talk about the fact that the name of the book is Making Your Crazy Work for You yep. from Trauma and Isolation to Self-Acceptance and Love, which yep. there was a lot of self-acceptance and love going on on I-95 for you. Uh -huh. uh, but but the first thing I want to tell people or have you explain to them is when somebody puts the uh, word like crazy in the title of a book, of course, the mind goes in all sorts of different directions. When I told friends of mine what the title of the book is, they're like, oh, that's perfect for you. And I said, no, it's kind of a different kind of crazy. Hmm. And so what you're trying to do with that uh, and your, your two other co-authors, uh, Dr. Uh, Grant Brenner and Daniel Berry on RN, um, what you guys are trying to do is say everybody's got their own kind of crazy. But in this book, uh, it really has to do with going back to your childhood and how you were managed by your caretakers or how you managed your caretakers and how that then settles into your own kind of crazy. So, well, right. And, and you're, oh my God, you couldn't have put it better. I mean, that manage your caretakers in our terminology is yes, managing and caretaking our caretakers because somehow the human mind as it is developing, as we are developing, <clears throat> picks up on cues from our environment. And when we're little, when we're infants, when we're developing, our environment is basically our primary caretaker or caretakers, right? So when they're not able to take care of us, when they're ineffectively caretaking us, our theory and now our ongoing research is telling us that children, that we are natural caretakers. And when we're not being taken care of, we reverse we reverse the roles and we take care of our caretakers so that sort of ironically, they can take care of us. But we see these long, long-term consequences of that being that we don't trust the world, our environment, i.e. other people to take care of us. And so the crazy specifically that we're trying to help people break out of and make use of is the craziness of being cut off from our world, the craziness of being cut off from other people who could care for us and love us. And that kind of crazy is like uh, comparable to the craziness of solitary confinement. It's isolation. Right. So let's back it up again, because you guys had done a couple of books about 
Irrelationship. And yes. what I thought was interesting is that this is the third book and it's about self-irrelationship, which in a way, Mark, I sort of felt like you should have done first because <laughs> I, I was laughing at it, wait a minute, you know, you hear this all the time. I really can't mend this relationship until I yeah. mend myself. Right, right. So so it's interesting to to read this after having been through your other books. Because I think that so many people are are blamers mm. and they're blaming everybody else around them, maybe because they were put upon as children and they became the caretakers, whatever that might be. But we all know you can't be in a healthy relationship unless you have a healthy relationship with yourself. So let's talk about how you guys broke that down and how somebody can read your book and actually try to see some of that wisdom or do they have to also seek therapy? I know there's a zillion different Right, right. Well, so, so I love to hear you say this. I love the question, Kim, because I'm a convert. This book and this process converted me to believing more what your, you know, sort of your theory on, on relationship, because I come from a school of psychoanalysis called relational slash interpersonal psychoanalysis. We believe generally that human beings are thoroughly cultural that our brains, our minds are thoroughly peopled with the important, significant others who are in our lives. Like that there may be as many versions of myself as there are other people who are significant to me in my life. In other words, we call it multiple self-experience. It's not dissociation per se, although it uh, dissociative identity disorder, although that can be an extreme version of what we're talking about. So to me, other people are so important that there is hardly a self without a self other. And that kind of goes back to Donald Winnicott, that goes to Harry Stack Sullivan, that goes to Eric Fromm, some of these big theoreticians in the field. But I, so I had to be sold on this self-relationship idea because our original concept of irrelationship is, quote, a co-created psychological defense system against the anxieties of empathy, intimacy, vulnerability, and emotional investment. So, if, that, if this is a co-created psychological defense system, how can there be a self-care relationship? So Grant and Danny and I spent the last few years really working out a model where the self is split when it's traumatized, where the self is so split when traumatized by ineffective early care giving, taking, that the self actually has all these different relationships with itself, with our self. So, I mean, it's, it's kind of mind-blowing where we went with this because I had to be at first convinced that even a self relationship even existed. And now I am based on the hard, hard work of Danny uh, Grant and I. Right. Well, I think that um, anybody who's been through a, a number of relationships and has taken the time to put the work in, whether it's through psychoanalysis, um, you've been at the uh, psychologist and let's talk about that, a founding partner of the community consulting group. Yeah. Uh, you're in you're in New York City, supervisor of psychotherapy at the William Allenson White Institute. Um, also author of Don't Be a Dick, one of my favorites. Woo! Uh, woo! <laughs> um, but, but what I find really interesting is that um, so many people are uh, have narcissistic personalities. They have narcissistic rage because of being put upon or what have you. Yeah. Um, so wouldn't you think that going back to the fact that there are so many people in the world who are self-centered or narcissistic, that this would, this would make sense to you, that they would have a split in their own self-concept because narcissism is really just anger at yourself to a degree. 
Yes, yes. And, and interestingly, yeah, and, and I mean, I, I, let me not go too far with that whole self thing, because I do follow Bessel van der Kolk and, you know, uh, I follow all the traumatologists. I follow Janina Fisher and all these people who really are talking about the association and splits in the self, as Harry Stack Sullivan was talking about in the 1940s um, and even 30s. But um, doing all this research and trying to find people who were unreachable at the time, those were schizophrenic people, he could reach through mechanisms of really trying to understand how the relationship is transformative. But I love what you're saying, because you're also talking about people who, as a psychologist, I can say are on axis two, which means it's a personality disorder. And I think one of the things that we don't always give credit for to a really painful narcissist, someone who's driving us nuts, someone who's sadistic and who's acting out all this insecurity is that anything on axis two, anything that is formally a personality disorder is also cultural. Unlike axis one, which is more in the brain, it's in the neurochemical, you know, sort of functioning, that axis two is in the relationships. And we assume really, although we don't hardly ever emphasize this because it's too painful to have compassion for a narcissist, but this is about trauma. A narcissist right. becomes a narcissist because they were so deeply wounded. And one could even speculate that the wounds are relational, that somehow or other they were hurt, they were disappointed, and they were so crushed that they have completely turned against the world. Which is Right, I agree. So those people on, let's say, this access to access two, um, they're the ones who can seek therapy, they can seek help, they just have to have that level of self-awareness in order to heal, which mm -hmm. is really about a healing process per right, se. Exactly, exactly. Um, and you talk about uh, the relationship model, which in the dream sequence. So mm -hmm. having to do with discovery, repair, empowerment, alternatives, mutuality. Uh, do those, does that dream sequence have to go in that sequence? I mean, is that the way that it works? Does everybody have to do that step? Because you know, there's a zillion people out there who've only gotten past two steps and then they give up. Yeah, no, no, I, I'm with you. I, I, I love the question because I really believe, yes. I mean, I think you can even work your way backward. You can experience safe mutuality in a relationship with someone who cares for you, someone who's accepting you as you are, which helps us then accept ourselves as we are as well. That that can be, I think it can work backward from there. I mean, you know, again, self-care relationship, we're starting with discovery that then allows us to repair various parts of ourselves by being aware that they exist. Like for instance, with a, with a narcissist, I think, one of the things that's so hard for a narcissist to accept in, say, discovery is that I am, an, I am like this. I'm getting all this feedback from the world that I'm this jerk, I'm this dick, I'm this whatever I am, I'm this asshole. You know, I'm getting all this feedback, but I'm so entitled. It's so unsafe to drop my guard and hear that. So I just defend myself even more greatly. If you start looking, if that person starts seeing that I am not this person because I'm you know, a horrible person, because I'm wounded, we can then start to have compassion for ourselves, right? We can ask that person to have compassion for him herself. What do you think intellectually is the easiest way for, let's say, let's, since we're just talking about the narcissist, yeah. since I happen to run into so many of them, it seems, um, but there must be an intellectual capacity for even the narcissist to say, you know what, I did have all these traumas or what have you, if they can get to that point of realizing it. But then don't you have to have some level of intelligence in order to absorb information and turn it around? In other words, I do think that there are some people who have been through trauma where it's irreversible. And, you know, whether it's because their environment hasn't changed or they 
don't have the capacity. And it's not just emotional. It is intellectual. I, I have heard this from a number of psychologists that you have to have a certain level of smartness and awareness in order to get to the next level. It's really interesting. I, I mean, the, the reason why I might leave a little room for some exceptions is because I work with a lot of substance abusers and because I see that recovery from substance abuse has very little to do with intelligence and almost everything to do with accepting what they call in 12-step program, the bottom, meaning like I wiped out so thoroughly, I just can't go any further. I cannot act like me anymore. If I act like me, the bottom falls out of my life and flat out, like, frankly, I might not be able to live anymore. You know, narcissists aren't really renowned for suicide, but there are ways of, of existing on this planet that may be so painful that you just can't really exist, that you shut down so completely that you're, you know, that you're lost. And this is what Grant and Danny and I are actually talking about is crazy. So in the center of a narcissistic personality disorder could be this terrible, punishing, traumatic isolation that is the definition of crazy in this book. And it also can be, if it's a bottom for any of us, it can be, and here's the real kicker, a call for help. And I don't think you have to be terribly smart to make that call for help, but maybe to keep implementing you know, a program of recovery from especially narcissism because it's so deep. Because it's so complicated. Yeah, right. and, and traumatizing. It's, I mean, it's been, you're so traumatized if the world is your enemy and the right. narcissist sees the world as the enemy. Okay, now you said something and it, it's a little confusing to me because you said, I can't go on being me. But at the same token, that person who's hitting the bottom isn't necessarily that person. That's right. That's that's right. That's what this book is about. That's recognizing, say, the discovery, right, in the dream sequence. That's recognizing that I am multiple self. I right. am as many selves as I have important relationships in my life. So that's where what we're talking about. We're talking about splits in self. That like right. almost you can, once you get to this point of awareness, of a bottom, of reaching a bottom, you can start saying like, that wasn't me. In fact, Harry Stack Sullivan himself called the pit, the pit of isolation and trauma. He called it, I mean, because he was writing in the forties and had this very kind of funny vernacular. He called it, not me, not dash me, which is interesting because that's basically what you just said. Right. So that's, and that's what I'm saying. So, and, and I guess, you know, I, I, I shouldn't use the word intellectual um, necessarily because it's, you know, that's such a big word, but when I was reading um, a part of the book about how much more difficult it is for some people to claim themselves back or claim their life back is if they were actually super good at being that caretaker, if they That's made right. everything run really smoothly, That's because right. then, it, I mean, there's so many people, you know, myself included where, oh my gosh, this horrible thing happened when I was two and a half years old and I'm well aware of it. And it had all these negative repercussions, but there are other people that it seems to have floated them along through life, and but they have all these anger issues, and they ah. have, and, you know, and the, and they're those are the people that it's worse because it's not so apparent because it's working, work. right? Isn't that what you're saying? I think in a brilliant kind of way, the line that's running through everything you're saying is it's working, and that's the problem, right? Right, it's working because again, remember, Grant and I are psychoanalysts, and psychoanalysts speak in the language of psychological defense, which means. I need coping mechanisms that defend me, that protect me from being aware of things that would destroy my ability to function. So if I knew these things about myself, 
I can't function. I can't work. I can't make a living. I'm, you know, I'm in real trouble. So again, I mean, I'm thinking of like maybe a, 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 a vignette from the book about a guy named Simon who was incredibly smart and his life fell apart when he was little and his mother was dying from the moment he was born and his father was totally absent and he had a brother who was abusing his sister. I mean, like it just gets worse and worse and worse. So Simon is an incredibly smart guy. Simon has relationships, very superficial, but they look pretty good on the outside. Simon, you know, has a, an incredible degree and he's got tons of money and like da, 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 and he is suffering. He is suffering. One of the smartest people on planet Earth. And this guy is suffering from the craziness of this kind of isolation. And the only reason, thank goodness, we know Simon is because that crazy was hurting him so badly that he reached out to, 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 to me. And so, you know, so, so, so we can angle in on exactly what you're saying uh, if we're open to listening to what the, you know, these wounded people have to say and see it as wounding rather than, you know, just pathology or sociopathy or psychopathy, any of these things that are truly, you know, scary, scary, scary conditions when you're operating with a sociopath, right? <laughs> well, and also it's, uh, it, but, and people who even uh, aren't that bad off, but at the same time can't get move their life forward because they ruminate over the same things. They tape right never stops never. going yeah. and they really can't stop themselves from revisiting things that are, are really to a degree meaningless because there's no way for them to interpret them yeah. in, in a different, in a different sense. And what, what I was getting from, from this book is that the healthiest people in the world are really the people that um, are neither caretaker nor, you know, the person who, um, you know, is accepting all the care, but in other words, that it's just this exchange of love between individuals, which would exactly. be the opposite of mental isolation. That's exactly right. And that, that's like literally you just define relationship sanity as we defined it in our second book. Like that's exactly it. We're like, hey, it could be transmitted by caretaking or caretaking in. But really, it's just that what you said. It's that that that. It's sort of a balance of giving and taking, of love, of care, of affection, of curiosity, of interest, of attention, of all these things, all these incredible resources that we have to offer each other. But we don't realize that we're like being stingy with our resources, but we're so terrified that something bad is going to come back at me if I take care of you, if I offer that. So really, we are offering a, a, a prison break from isolation. Right. Well, it's, you know, it's the fear versus love thing. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that's obviously so huge. Now, this is a really big, huge, open-ended question, sort of about the fact that we always had very high divorce rates uh, in the United States. I mean, there's divorce everywhere. People handle it differently in different countries. Uh, but when the pandemic hit, you know, you had a physical isolation. And I guess the big question for you guys out there who are thinking about this stuff is did the mental isolation also get worse along with the physical isolation, even though, you know, you were in the same house with people, but those are the people you were isolating yourself from. I mean, I, I heard all sorts of horror stories are all sorts of relationships blowing up because they were under a magnifying glass of, oh my God, I do everything. And this yeah. person is smoke and mirrors now. Right. And now I see it. <laughs> well, Kim, I mean, it couldn't be a better time for that question. Remember, I spent 10 hours on I-95 with my there wife. 
and my two children, 10 and 14, 10 hours. And I heard today that I was one of the lucky ones because there were some people who were stuck there for 20. I mean, we are so blessed to have gotten our way through it. But here, but the answer to that question is I think you're absolutely right because what I think happens with the kind of isolation that can happen with four people rather than one is that the relationships I believe need to be fed. And how are they fed? They're fed by our interests, by our social life, by having compelling jobs and work and interests. And in the in the pandemic, a lot of us could not access those resources, right? We don't have, or we still have, but we don't have the same kind of social life. We don't have all that stuff firing off, even in our brain. I mean, our brain fires off oxytocin when we're close to other people who care for us, right? kinds of things physiologically going on with us that we were obviously inadvertently cut off from in the pandemic. So I do believe relationships need to be fed. They need to be fed. They are systems of you know input and outtake and all of that kind of important you know so yeah and i think the people who who just stared at each other like thinking that their partner was going to provide absolutely everything are 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 unfortunately going to face like the incredible disappointment because even yuval harari right who wrote that brilliant book sapiens it's a brilliant book but at the very end of the book he's studying 240,000 years of human anthropology and history right and at the end he goes here's what happiness is one, you're lucky. You got a brain that fires the right neurotransmitters, right? Two, you've got expectations that match outcomes. And I mean, talk about an opportunity to be cornered by our expectations for almost two years in the pandemic. Right. And like looking at the outcomes and going, this sucks. <laughs> you know? Yeah, but so what? how do you handle, uh, and I'm sure this comes up all the time in your practice and all the people you interface with, is that there's all these different dynamics of whether it's a friend group or whether it's two spouses or what have you, where there's one person in the group who's working really hard on, you know, whatever their past traumas might be or trying to figure things out or moving ahead. And then they feel actually isolated from the group. It might be temporary or it might be that they've needed to move on. And it's the same thing with a marriage. And it's the same thing uh, even in a business where there's somebody who realizes up close something needs to change, but the people around them are staying put where they are because of the fear, because of the trauma, because they don't want to put the work in. I find that to be the most exasperating thing. They won't even read your book, Mark. I mean, okay, look, and- Kim, I only have two rules in relationship, only two. Here's, here's the first one. Keep the focus on yourself. Here's the second one. Refer to rule one. <laughs> and and to, as an answer to your question, here's what I mean. I mean, I'm saying, look, if you're in a relationship with someone significant, you've got to keep the focus on yourself. You've got to look at what your contributions are and ask, because here's the relationship question. Am I, it's so bizarre, and people are always like dumbfounded when I ask this crazy question. It's crazy, 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 crazy. And you'll probably think so too at first. I'm asking, are you contributing in a way that inadvertently and accidentally prevents other people from contributing to you because that's what your relationship is. And so in this friend group, you look at that one person who's pulling all the weight and I will say, stop being so damn selfish. Leave room for other people to contribute. I'm looking at the partner or the spouse who says, I do the work. I do, I go to work. I come home and take care of the children. I cook the meal. I clean the clothes. I do all the housework. I'm like, stop being so selfish. Knock it off. You got to leave room for that other person to contribute because if you're caretaking at a hundred percent, You've got zero opportunity for your partner to contribute to you. And maybe 
That is a psychological defense that you're not aware of because you learned at a very, very early age to distrust or actually to totally trust that the environment will not take care of you. And if you keep taking care of all this and building all that resentment and anger legitimately, then you will go from relationship to relationship to relationship, not even realizing that you're caretaking so hard that you're not letting other people take care of you. They feel like they have no value to you. They lose interest and are bored at you beating your chest and talking about how much you contribute. They're sick of your resentment and they don't understand why they hurt so much because nobody understands this, but there are people who do look very generous and they are, but they're also this irrelationship thing that is not allowing the world to take care of them. And they are resentful and angry and lonely. So right. it's ironic, right? It's ironic that some people give like a fire hose. <sighs> you can't get anything up the nozzle of a fire hose going full blast. Right. Interesting. So which of the books do people need to read so they can understand that part? Because that's, I mean, that's, that's absolutely huge. But yeah. that also has to do with just the open dialogue that's required. Yeah, that's right. No, I think you can get that from any of the three books. That's, that's definitely in there. We even have a thing called the 40-20-40 that is a model of trying to understand our contributions and what's a healthy level of contribution to relationships so that you can have relationship sanity, you know? Right. So what if you're in a situation with um, a partner, a friend, or whomever, that you get to the point where you ask them to participate in a dialogue with you about this type of thing, or you realize that maybe they did have some trauma in, in their past or in their childhood or, or their family was a little bit dysfunctional. What would be the best way to approach it? Because I agree with you that women in particular tend to overdo, overdo, and then resent. I mean, it's, it's like, you know, the pattern, right? Mm. Agreed. So, especially with the pandemic, because, you know, they're, they don't want to see the house go to shambles. They don't want it. So they'll just do it. And then they'll resent you. I, I, I get that. But what if you go to the other person and there isn't a, an agreement on making changes? Well, see, look, if you ask me what the primary ingredient in change is, here's what I think. I think the primary ingredient in any kind of change is simply willingness. And if you're willing to open up that conversation with anyone in your life, then that willingness, I think, suggests um, that, <clears throat> that you have something valuable. I mean, again, I'm looking for the implicit message. Because, for instance, somebody asked me once, uh, uh, my stepfather actually, asked me once who I love. I love my stepfather. And he asked me, and it, he's been in my life since I was 11. And he asked me once, he goes, you know, your mom's thinking about couples therapy. What do you think? And I go, look. I don't know what your problems are regarding this because we have a pretty good boundaries in our relationship. But I said the message of going to couple therapy with someone, the message that your relationship is worth that, the message of your willingness is more important either, or as important as anything you will discover about your relationship in couple therapy. So it's the willingness. Look, if you say, oh, I don't know how to talk to this person. I don't know what to do about this relationship. And then you are willing to go talk to this person about this difficult situation. Then what I think you're telling yourself is, this relationship is really valuable. Right. I hope we don't miss that. Because then, of course, you're then, then you go for the hard conversation. Then you go for the difficult conversation. But don't miss the willingness to open up, to initiate that. That person has to be worthwhile or you wouldn't bother because it's scary and there are no guarantees. Right. No guarantees. So the, the, the last thing I want to talk about before we wrap it up is, again, making your crazy work for you. I want everybody to see what the, what the cover looks like. Uh, I read this and I thought, you know, 
there's something very valuable about having a little bit of crazy and owning it <laughs> and not expecting yourself to be completely fixed because nobody really is, but to actually honor your little bit of crazy and then really pay attention to the people who love that about you. That's right. Because I think, again, going back to the whole love thing is that if somebody really loves that little bit of crazy about you, then it all sort of goes, poof, it's okay. It's mm -hmm. okay to be me. That's right. That's right. Because if you're really responding to your own crazy and reaching out, or if you're responding to someone else's crazy and opening up to whatever there is that they're coming to you with, then what you're basically saying is, I accept you as you are. Right. And basically, if we accept our craziness, we are saying to ourselves, I accept me as I am. And as I open up to these various split off parts of myself, I'm saying I accept you and I accept you. I, expect, I accept and accept and accept myself as I am. And I'm now giving opportunity for the important people in my life to do the same to give me back that acceptance. I will never know that other people accept me if I'm still split off and hiding these traumatized, pained, lonely, isolated parts of myself. And that's the best use of crazy, right? That it says, here I am, human. Here I am. Right. If I show you me and you love me and all my complexity and all my history and all my difficulty and all my trauma, then I will really feel like you love me, like me proper. Yes. And, and then we can stop beating ourselves up and get on with having some fun, right. you know, leading your life instead of, you know, nitpicking over every single thing that you do, which again, I leads to that isolation. That's so right. that's right. That's right. That's so good. That's such an important point because it's almost like I'm preparing myself to be the best version of myself so that I can take myself out for a ride and let others yes. respond, which is again, like the opposite of what we really need to do. We need to go like, Hey, look, I, I call it the intimacy of everyday life. And that happened a lot during the pandemic too. The intimacy of everyday life is if I'm living with you and I'm going through ups and I'm going through downs and I'm going through messes like yesterday on the I-95 yeah. seeing me at my worst, and my best, then I believe that you love the whole of me. That is the intimacy of everyday life. That's what I'm talking about. That's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, also, it, it just, um, it makes life so much easier, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and it's, it's not a great thing to say, but I think that as you get older, you realize that not everyone's going to love you and not everybody's going to think you're, you know, the person they want to hang out with all the time. But as long as you accept yourself and you're comfortable in your own skin, then I think it makes it easier all around, yeah. regardless. Yeah. So take the trauma level down, take it all down. And anyway, so any any last words? I'm glad you're home. I, I love your books behind you. I mean, I know that I mean, you've probably been interviewed a million times and people say, what's on your nightstand that you're reading? And that's what it looks like. <laughs> that's exactly. I don't even know what's there because I just kind of put it there. And I use that to block the sun because that's the East River in New York City, right, right? Right out there. And if I pulled that shade down, we would be like, celestial here oh uh, um, yeah well we, yeah. Yeah. the east river is not normally associated with celestial but i'll go with <laughs> not exactly no but i love <laughs> that it flows by it's one of the things that's kept me sane during the pandemic is oh work, i bet i work right here yeah know? why, why do do that? right there <laughs> yeah right exactly oh my gosh okay <laughs> Dr. Mark Borg, thank you so much again um everybody go out and try how to figure out what your crazy is. And, um, and you might find out it's not all that bad. No, I think so. That's think the upside. So. Anyway, <laughs> thank you. Thank you for joining me today. Thank Good luck. I, awesome. I await our next interview and whatever your next book might be. Thank you so much.
Pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> this is Kim Burns with What's the Story.